Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. We're continuing our respiratory month today. We had some talks on influenza and pediatric foreign body aspiration that I thought we'd review here. Let's start with influenza, and I know we discussed this a little last week on the cast, but a couple more critical points to discuss from the talk today. This talk was from one of our PGY3 residents, Kurt McDonald. We talk a lot about influenza because it's a highly contagious airborne disease that occurs in seasonal epidemic form and has the potential to reach pandemic proportions, as we've seen in recent years with things like H1N1 and other strains. Influenza causes an acute febrile illness and causes a huge loss in number of workdays, human suffering, and healthcare expenditures. Death rates for influenza are estimated between 18 to 25 per 100,000 in range, but the CDC thinks that this is a huge underestimate. As we discussed last week, influenza is a clinical diagnosis and viral panel testing isn't all that great. Influenza should be suspected in any patient with an acute febrile illness when there is significant prevalence of disease. The flu season in the Northern Hemisphere typically runs from November to March. So if it's June and someone comes in with a fever and cough, it's probably not the flu. The caveat on this is it's always flu season somewhere in the world and people travel all over the place. So it's important to always get a travel history in patients with fevers. What symptoms are we looking for? This is pretty straightforward. Fever, myalgias, cough, headache, sore throat, nasal congestion, and some patients can have the GI variant with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. The CDC stresses that all you really need for diagnosis is a fever and either sore throat or cough. Now, Kurt briefly touched on the groups at high risk for severe disease, and this includes the old, over 65, the young, less than two, those with chronic pulmonary disease, immunosuppression, and pregnancy. We'll drop a table in the show notes with a complete IDSA list. Knowing these high-risk groups can help you decide who should potentially be admitted or at least get very close follow-up if they're well-appearing. Finally, Kurt discussed in detail the use of oseltamivir or Tamiflu. We touched on this last week and had some foam links to discussions on the topic, and we're going to include those in the show notes this week as well. We discussed two major articles today with opposing conclusions. The first was by Dobson et al., published in Lancet in May 2015. This was a meta-analysis, and the big claim here is they got patient-level data from the trials and used that to build their meta-analysis. The authors conclude that oseltamivir led to faster symptom resolution by about one day, and there were less hospitalizations in the Tamiflu group. Nausea and vomiting were markedly increased as a side effect. The issue with this study was that the authors were heavily funded by Roche through a secondary group named MUGAS, M-U-G-A-S. This group is a thinly veiled attempt to lend credence and hint at a distance from conflicts of interest, but it's clear who was funding them, so huge conflict is present. The major issue is that Roche decided which patient data was released for the group to analyze. It's pretty clear how they could easily have biased this study. Honestly, I'm a bit shocked that it was printed in a journal like Lancet at all. The second article was published in the BMJ in 2014 by Jefferson and his colleagues, who did not have any significant financial conflicts. This group found a 17-hour reduction in symptoms with the drug and no difference in hospital admissions. They also note that kids with asthma did not derive any benefit from the drug. Nausea was significantly increased with a number needed to harm of 28, and vomiting was also increased with a number needed to harm of 22. None of the studies they reviewed showed decrease in transmission from the sick patient to healthy close contacts. Finally, psychiatric adverse events were increased as well in the oseltamivir group with a number needed to harm of 94. So what's the bottom line? Oseltamivir use in patients with influenza decreases symptoms by about 16 hours with an increase in nausea, vomiting, and psychiatric events. There's no documented decrease in hospitalizations, pneumonia, or death. There's limited information, if any, on the use of this drug in critically ill patients as well. 
While the CDC continues to recommend it, they also have a huge financial conflict of interest as they get large donations from Roche, so I'm not sure that I trust the CDC on this one. I'm not using this drug in well-appearing patients. It's expensive, lots of side effects, and minimal benefit. Our second talk of the day was from one of our senior PEM faculty, Sue Torrey. Sue discussed the presentation and management of kids with foreign body aspiration. 80% of these patients are going to be under three years of age with a peak incidence in the one to two year group. In toddlers, the object aspirated tends to be food, but balloons, marbles, and other things that are round and slippery are pretty commonly seen as well. 60% of the objects will find their way into the right bronchial tubes and about 20% to the left. 10 to 15% will lodge in the upper trachea. And of course, these are the ones that tend to be fatal. Let's get to the clinical stuff. There are really two major presentations that we'll see the patient with an upper obstruction who's actively dying or already dead, and the patient with some cough and maybe wheezing or retractions. Let's start with the really sick group. Kid comes in with a witness choking event and is in severe respiratory distress. You should suspect a partial occlusion of the airway by the foreign body here. Keep them in a position of comfort, usually sitting up, and try not to agitate the patient with IV sticks and the other things that we typically do. Supply supplemental O2 however you can and get your consultants on board immediately. This typically includes ENT, anesthesia, maybe surgery or pulmonary critical care. The safest place to get these objects out is gonna be in the operating room where all the tools are available, including the rigid bronchoscope and a surgeon who can place a trach if needed. If your consultants are delayed and the patient converts to a complete obstruction, you can consider doing the laryngoscopy and trying to either remove the foreign body or using the tube or bougie to push it down into the right main stem if you can't get it out or visualize it above the cords. How about the less dramatic presentation? 75 to 90% of these patients will have a witness choking event and then present with respiratory difficulties. The classic triad of cough, wheeze, and unilateral decreased breath sounds are only gonna show up in about 55 to 60% of patients. Chest x-ray, though typically the first line imaging modality, will only be abnormal in about 33% of patients in the emergent setting. The common finding is, again, unilateral hyperinflation. A common board question is a chest x-ray with a coin asking whether the coin is in the trachea or the esophagus. A coin in the esophagus will appear on face, flat and round, on a PA or AP x-ray, and you'll see just the side of the coin in the lateral. If the coin is in the airway, you'll see the opposite, on face in the lateral and edge view only in the PA or AP. Additional x-rays are often recommended to help find subtle findings of hyperinflation like expiratory and inspiratory films or decubitus images, but the evidence to support the utility of these additional films is pretty minimal. A recent study published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2013 states the addition of decubitus to standard view increases false positives without increasing the true positives and lacks clinical benefits. I'll drop a link to that article in the show notes. Missing these foreign bodies is going to be a pretty big problem as they can lead to post-obstructive pneumonia, recurrent pneumonia, lung abscesses, bronchiectasis, and hemoptysis. In fact, I think we should seriously consider that pediatric patients with recurrent pneumonia could have a missed foreign body aspiration from who knows how long ago. Once again, you've got to get your ENT and pulmonary consultants on board as the patient's going to probably need a rigid bronchoscope for removal emergently. Patients who are asymptomatic with a witnessed aspiration should still have consultation, but the removal can be done urgently, perhaps even in the outpatient setting. Okay, to sum this all up, suspect foreign body aspiration in kids who either had a witness choking event or in kids who had a rapid onset of respiratory distress. Clinical symptoms, physical exam, and imaging can all be misleading. If you suspect it, get your consultants on board because the patient is going to likely need to go to the OR for a rigid bronchoscope and removal. The final talk of the day was a visiting lecture from Brian Fries on numeracy. 
Brian is one of the chief residents down at Cooper in Camden, New Jersey, and won a chief resident incubator competition through Academic Life and Emergency Medicine to give our residency a lecture. We'll publish an additional podcast on Friday of Brian's full talk. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. This Wednesday, we'll have a post-up on the approach to the shoulder examination from one of our faculty, Tim Green, and a journal update on pediatric head trauma and the importance of an isolated scalp hematoma. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.